Hi, this is Ben Sorens with Ellerslie Mission Society. The title of this message by Pastor Eric Ludi is drawn from Adam's famous words. This message is entitled, Lord, It Was the Woman. Self-justification has been around for quite a while, and we are still very good at it, and it is still just as deadly to the soul. Are you prone to shifting the blame from yourself to others? Or do you confess your wrongs, repent, and find grace in Christ Jesus? Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. Lord, it was the woman. And uh, just in case you're wondering what this message is about, I gave a little subtitle. A study in self-justification. One of the most common things, now this is, yes, it is a humorous title, but it is very biblical. Uh, It is a concept straight out of the pages of Scripture. It is one of the first evidences of the sinful propensity and the sinful disposition of men. When, When the Spirit of God is retracted from the life, and we die spiritually, one of the first evidences of that death is what we could call self-justification. You see, there's still a law and there's still a standard of righteousness. That doesn't go away just because we sin. In fact, it weighs all the heavier. So to deal with that, now this incriminating guilty conscience that you have, there is a technique that we utilize within our soul to justify ourselves. See, a man that is not justified is a dead man. And for whatever reason, intrinsically, we know this. So as a result, we attempt to justify ourselves before the bar of heaven instead of understanding that we need someone to justify us. And so we're going to have a study in self-justification. This is, I think, a very, very important study. I do feel like we're just sticking our toe in a very vast ocean. I think the concept of justification in Scripture is of extreme importance. There are certain terms in Scripture that many of us know, and we we say it's important, but we actually don't know what it means, and practically, we've never gained a grip on it. Justification is a classic example of that. Sanctification could be another example of that. Redemption, uh, these are all big words that most of us esteem and say, oh yes, and we have that in Jesus, but oftentimes we don't know what they mean practically to us. I remember sitting in uh, a pastor's office, and we were dealing with the, the issue of sexuality amongst men today, and just the breakdown amongst leaders, amongst elders in churches, deacons in churches, just the, uh, I mean, it's just disgusting what has happened in the church of Jesus Christ in regards to this area. And when your leaders are struggling with these things, do, is it a surprise that the rest of the congregations are struggling with it too? It's sort of like when the shepherd opens up the gates, the wolves come in. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem of great proportion. But I remember the discussion went something like this that uh, this, this couple had come into this one pastor and had the woman had said, uh, look, you know, pastor, he keeps looking at pornography. He keeps going after these things, and they, they wound me. They make me feel that big. And uh, the man was like, hey, I'm a man. That's what men do. And the pastor in this situation actually turned to the woman and said, the healthiest way to have a relationship 
is for you to accept that your husband is a man. All right, now, I don't know how you thought I responded to that, but that's one of my pressure points in my life, is the self-justification that has entered into Christian masculinity is off the charts. Women are made to feel guilty for actually desiring their husbands to walk in purity, and then it becomes the woman's fault because she either doesn't look attractive enough, or could you imagine the weight that ends up being placed on the shoulders of a woman in this culture when that thought pattern starts to be propagated from the pulpits. This is very, very important. So I just want to go out of my way to touch on it today, and I want us to address this in our lives. If we have even a slight haze of self-justification in our life, I want the Spirit of God to begin to expose it today. At any point in our life where we begin to justify ourselves as a, ourselves instead of let God justify us, it is of extreme danger in our soul. Genesis 3. So the serpent has baited Eve. Eve has seen the attractiveness of the fruit. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof. Now you guys know the backstory, don't you? That God said, look, you can eat from any tree, but there is one tree in the garden. It's the, no- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. The day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. The law was given. The first command was given. And yet, that first command is now violated. So, it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. A little awkward. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. I don't know if any of you have ever felt this moment in your life, but you know the law of God. Somehow, some way, you know you violated something. And you're feeling that discomfort, that sense of guilt. Uh-oh, God's walking in the cool of the garden. And so as a result, you find yourself hiding. Now, most of us may not do this in a natural sense or a physical sense, you know, like Eric, the pastor, is walking down and you're like guilty because you did something, so you're going to go run and hide behind a bush. Maybe it has happened. But what this has to do with is the inspection of the Spirit of God. The law of God is pressing against us. You see, we are called to be holy as he is holy, perfect as he is perfect. We are called to bear the image of the Most High God, yet something is wrong. And so when we begin to sense that law, that lawgiver, that judge, his presence, the bright light of it near us, we begin to look for ways to hide, to shield ourselves from that inspecting light. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Now, for whatever reason, some people actually think that God didn't know. Didn't know where Adam was. He's sort of caught off guard by this. No, God knows exactly what he's doing. This is a a good parent. It's like playing hide-and-seek with your little two-year-old who's giggling underneath the desk, you know, and you know exactly where they're at, and yet you're like, oh, are they in here? No. Are they in here? No. Adam, where art thou? 
And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, says Adam. I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. You see, God is noticing a behavior pattern which is not normal for the way he created men and women. Why are you ashamed? There should be no shame unless, unless. And he said, who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? What does the man say? Here's our line. Uh, the woman whom thou gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. She did it. And guess what, God? You're the one that gave her to me. He is actually incriminating both the woman and his God. He is blaming his sin on someone else. This is called self-justification. He is attempting to clear himself of any fault, as if God's going to say, you have a good point there. I should not have given you that woman, and she should not have given you that fruit. You're clear. However, she is in big trouble. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. He did it. You see what's happening here? When we talk about being in Adam, of the heredity of Adam, of the descendancy of Adam. Well, all of us are born in Adam, and we must be born again. When we are born again, we are born into the line of Christ. And no longer are we related to Adam. When you are born into Christ, you no longer are related to that behavior. That behavior is of Adam. The behavior of Christ is extremely different, as we will explore in this message. So when caught red-handed, what do you say? Uh, it was my parents. They're the ones that raised me this way. I'm innocent. It was my brother. It was my sister. They're the ones that corrupted me. They're the ones that taught me all these things when I was seven. It was my buddies at school. I would have never known about those drugs unless they had introduced them to me. It was my teachers. You should have seen what they taught me in school. If I hadn't been sent to a public school, then I would have probably been a great Christian. It was my neighborhood. You should have seen my background. The, the little uh, borough that I grew up in, so corrupt. I mean, hardly anyone ever made it out alive. It was the liberal media. Why were you watching it? <laughs> it was the foul agenda of Hollywood that got me. It was all those corrupt politicians. It was the alcohol talking. It wasn't really me driving. That, that was the alcohol. It was the, you fill in the blank. You get the point? You see, self-justification is looking for something else to put the guilt on. You feel the guilt, but you want to be cleared of it. You don't want to live with guilt. You don't want to be under the weight of that. And so you're looking for something else around you to pin it on. The law. The law is a very seemingly unfriendly concept. Actually, the law is your friend. It just doesn't feel like it when you're guilty. You see, the law is exposing the fact that you need to be justified. It's helping you. The problem is most of us want to either alter the law or escape the law. We don't want the law to keep weighing down upon our soul. 
Because over and over and over again, it's exposing us, you're guilty. You're guilty. We don't like that. It's called condemnation, by the way. Condemnation is when the law weighs upon your soul and you have no out. You have no escape. The law is giving judgment against your soul, saying you have violated the Most High God, and as a result, you will be eternally separated from Him forever, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Condemnation. You are guilty, and there is nothing actually that you can do to change it. Lope. That's bad news. We have a problem. We have violated the law of God. The law of God is His perfect righteousness. And most of us know the Ten Commandments, at least we've heard them, whether or not we've memorized them. But if you go through those Ten Commandments, you begin to recognize, for instance, thou shalt have no other God before me. And we're like, well, I've never had like an idol or Buddha or anything like that. Have you ever put yourself before God? Well, it doesn't say that, does it? Yes, it does. You put yourself and you worshiped you above God. You have violated the first of the Ten Commandments. And as a result, just one error out of all that is righteous, and you are justly judged by the law and eternally separated forever. What? That's too harsh. That's too extreme. And you could go through every single one of those Ten Commandments, and you would find that every single person in here is guilty. We are guilty. Now, here's what's interesting about the law. No matter who did what to us, whether it was the woman who gave us the fruit, whether it was the serpent that beguiled us, whether we came from a rotten neighborhood, whether our parents were abusive, it doesn't actually matter. No matter who did what to us, the law doesn't alter. It doesn't change based on your difficulties. It is still the law. It is still the perfect righteousness of God. It still demands perfection. The law says, you must be perfectly righteous to be justified before me. So where's your perfection? You need to have perfection. Well, I want into your presence, God. Well, you need to have perfection. You need to be perfectly holy. You need to be perfectly righteous. Well, I I can't do that. The law silences every single one of us. So to self-justify, here's a quick definition. To make an excuse for your wrong behavior. To put the blame elsewhere or to shirk blame altogether. Many of us do this. You see, it's not just that the woman did it. It's that, hey, I actually didn't really do anything. And we come up with a creative recreation of events. No, no, when I remember the events, technically I didn't do anything. So you don't even need to blame it on anyone. It's a shirking of the blame altogether. It's just a creative, artistic way of getting out of things. It's called a loophole. And so however we do it, we are masters at this. We're humans. Humans are great at at least one thing, self-justification. So to judge justify. So you have self-justification, but now you have a judge that comes in, and he's the perfect judge. And this judge is responsible to uphold the law. And so his job is just to bring judgment on that which is opposed to the law, the law of the kingdom. And so to judge justify. It means to be found clear, right, and in perfect agreement with the law when measured by the exactitude of it. So it's like looking at the letter and the fine terminology in it and saying, well, no, you know, you don't measure perfectly with that. 
Well, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And you're like, yeah, I, I never committed adultery. Yeah, but here in the, uh, in the fine print, uh, there's a little asterisk here, and you go down to the bottom, it says, if a man has even looked at a woman lustfully, he's, it's as if he's committed adultery with her in his heart. How you doing? Ah, oh, you see, the fine print to be judged justified means in the innermost parts, the innermost thoughts, you have been pure. Forever, your entire life. Uh, that's to be judged justified. At least that's the term I'm using to describe it. So it's without flaw when inspected by the judge and jury of perfect righteousness. So I'm, I know I just said this, to self-justify, but here's another definition to self-justify. To seek an answer for your sin outside of God's one and only solution, Jesus Christ. There is only one solution for your guilt. There is only one solution for your sin, and it is Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible makes clear. So when you seek to make any other claim in your soul to put it off on someone else, or to act like it didn't happen, you are creating a fog bank in your soul and you are actually deviating from the only solution that actually could judge justify you. Three kinds of self-justifiers. So the first one, we'll call them the comparers. They are fine because they are not as bad as someone else. This is a very interesting technique. And I see this in husbands all the time. You know, I, remember, I, I've dealt with the issue of sexuality for most of my ministry life. And so when I'm dealing a lot with leaders and marriages. And so I've seen this one just sort of over and over and over and over again. Where the man says, I don't know what her problem is. She keeps complaining about how I am as a husband, but has she seen the guy down the street named Chuck? That guy's terrible to his wife. He beats his wife. And then this man's wife says, yes, and you look at pornography. Hey, compared to Chuck, who has an affair, that's not that bad. It's called self-justification. He's attempting to incriminate Chuck and put the blame on someone else because they're worse, and as a result, make himself look white as snow next to that charcoal character down the road. And yet, his measurement is not supposed to be with Chuck. His measurement is supposed to be with perfect righteousness. And if he's measured against perfect righteousness, who's the chunk of coal now? So, and in contrast with Adolf Hitler, they think they look like an angel. How many people have said that? Hey, at least I'm not Adolf Hitler. Praise God for that. Number two, performers of justice. Every bad thing they do is done to correct a wrong. So in other words, these guys always have this concept that because something bad was done, they need to do something to correct the wrong. And so that's how they justify what they're doing. So this is what they say. They say, I hit him, well, because he hit me. I, I, I'm not actually guilty of hitting someone because I got hit first. And all I was doing is correcting what was wrong. I was bringing justice to the situation. You ever heard eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Eric? Yeah, you see, I got hit, so therefore, I hit them. And it's just justice, that's all it is. It's not actually sin. How many of us do this? This is classic little kid talk. Uh, you know, it's like, well, why, why did you do that? Well, they did this to me. They stole my toy. That's why I stole theirs. That's how little kids behave. This is how Adam thinks. So I lied to them because they lied to me. 
They are attempting to make something right by doing something wrong. You ever heard it said that two wrongs do not make a right? And they justify themselves under the banner of working justice. So these are performers of justice, as if there's a, some type of angel choir going, ah, behind them as they do their great deed of punching someone in the nose and lying. Somehow they've taken their criminal activity and made it seem like it was a good thing. How did they do that? How do we do that? Slick attorneys. I don't know if any of you have ever run into a slick attorney, but they are fine. In other words, hey, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. Why? Because they ha always have an excuse, a reason for their bad behavior. And when they are done talking, you would actually consider their behavior angelic. In listening to them, you would think they were a hero by the time their story's done. It's like, wow, I didn't know. Wow, I'm going to pat you on the back instead of rebuke you. You actually did a good deed here. And so they know, and I know all of these are sort of interrelated, but they somehow always have an answer. No matter what you bring up, it's like, well, I'm just concerned about this. And they say, oh, no, that's actually not what happened. And they have a tale to tell. They have a way of getting out of any corner that they're in. And so I want you to just evaluate, because I have a hunch, even if you don't function in this role, at, a, at least you're maybe wise to it now at this point in your life, if you have, have a slick attorney tendency to always have a reason for why you did what you did, and it always sounds so convincing. And you know, I know in marriage, one of the classic things to do is when you know that you've done something wrong to harm your spouse, then you try and recreate the situation that wasn't recorded. Have you ever had it as a spouse? Like, I wish that recording was, I wish that conversation was recorded. And you're thinking, I'm glad it wasn't. Because you know that you said something a little different than you're now recasting the conversation as. And now in your version of it, you meant this. And what you mean now, in your mind, makes you sound like you were a hero back then when actually, actually you were criticizing them. You were saying exactly what they said you were saying. But, you know, if you can cast it and weave it just correctly, you're going to look good on the outcome as opposed to bad. You see... Justification, self-justification is one of the most dangerous things the soul can ever touch. Two distinct things we self-justify. What we did do. Self-justifying why we did what we did or why we are doing what we are doing or why we are going to keep doing what we are doing. See, we have a behavior pattern. Classic man stuck in pornography. It's just like, hey, Look, I'm a man. This is just the way a man works. Go ask any guy on planet Earth if he struggles with it too, and you're going to find out that every guy in any Christian marriage is struggling with this. By the way, that's a bunch of bunk. However, it's one of the most common techniques used. But it's a form of self-justification. In other words, you are behaving in a certain way, and you know it's wrong. And so as a result, you are justifying what you did. It was an action done called a sin of commission. You committed a sin. The second thing we justify is what we did not do. You know that there are certain things you feel guilty about because you didn't do them? You ever pass that person on the road and you know you should have stopped? And you just sort of feel that, that guilt because you know that you probably should have stopped. And so this is something, it's called a sin of omission. It's something you omitted. You should have behaved a certain way, but you didn't. So what do we do in those situations? We justify I was really in a hurry. I had to, had to get there. Of 
Of course, you really did have an extra 20 minutes, but you don't want to tell yourself that. I didn't know. I had to figure in in that five-minute drive I was on that what if my car broke down? I mean, I, I might have had to go out and change the tire, and I still wanted to get there on time. Yeah, right. You see, we're coming up with a story for ourselves. We are justifying why we didn't do certain things. There are certain things you know to do and aren't doing them. And as a result, those are still things that we can self-justify. Not bad things that you have done, but good things that you didn't do. There's a reason why many of us still live the way we do, even though we know we're not supposed to be living that way. And you can just ask yourself, so why is it? And you have a reason. It's amazing. Well, you see, my life is very complicated, and I would. Yeah, I would do that, and I would start you know, giving uh, to this person over here who I know has need, or I would do this, or I would pay my taxes, or I would do this. Well, yeah, but, and you have your whole story made out already. What I want God to do with us today is put his finger on our stories. And I want us to allow him to say, <clears throat> so what do you think about that? Is that truth? Is that walking in the light as I'm in the light? Or is that self-justification? Luke 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. So remember, this is a lawyer, a slick attorney, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit an eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So the slick attorney answered and said, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, this is Jesus talking, you've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, what Jesus said brought conviction. It brought the weight of the law upon him. This man was only speaking that which was law, and so Jesus gave him law. It's like, hey, you need law to work, so you recognize that you need a savior. So go do it. Go live in perfection, buddy. And the man to justify himself, well, but I would, but I don't know who my neighbor is. And until someone tells me who my neighbor is, I can't really love my neighbor as myself. And because I'm missing that one piece of information, I guess I'm excused from not obeying it. And yet, he's justifying himself, and guess what? The law still weighs down upon him. Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard these things. Uh Uh-oh. So God brings the law. He brings the clear word of truth. You cannot have two masters. If you're serving mammon, greed, the things that you have, you can't also serve God. So guess who overhears? The Pharisees, the slick attorneys overhear this who were covetous. You see, now they're convicted thanks to what Jesus just said. And they heard all these things and they derided him. Doesn't that sound like something we'll do? Oh, that's ridiculous. That's not true. You see, they derided him. And he said unto them, you are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an an abomination in the sight of God. Self-justification and this behavior that we all applaud and say, yeah, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah, I'm going through the same thing. You're fine. It's okay to be covetous. I, don't, I, don't, I know this Jesus is saying all sorts of different things, but it's okay because we're sort of going to form a pact here. And we're going to all agree together that we're going to snub that. 
That's ridiculous. But this, us linking our arms together, all the men of this earth joining together and saying, we're just men, that's why we behave this way, is an abomination to Almighty God. Exodus 32, and Moses said unto Aaron, so Moses has been up in the mountain for 40 days. He has the Ten Commandments. Remember that scene? He comes down, and you know what? He didn't return to what he was expecting to return to. A group of people that have been praying and fasting for 40 days, longing for him to return. No, they were celebrating. They were doing some very, very bad, bad things. And Moses said unto Aaron, what did this people, what did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? Remember what they had? They had taken all their gold and they'd made golden calves, uh, or at least a golden calf. And they're celebrating, saying, this is our God. This is the one who brought us out of Egypt. What? How could they do that? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knows the people that they are set on mischief. This people that you put me in charge of are set on mischief. For they said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for, as, for, as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. I love that word, wot. We wot not what has become of him. And I said unto them, whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. This is one of the funniest lines in all of scripture as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so Aaron is caught red-handed. I mean, he's got a golden calf there. The people have gone berserk in, in Moses' absence. And it's like, hey, I just asked for all their gold. And so they gave it to me. Then I just cast it into the fire. And, uh, and there came out the, this calf. It was the woman. It was someone else other than Aaron. Aaron caught red-handed. See thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. Now most of us may not identify with that scripture. However, a man who is wise in his own conceit. He is wise in his ability to cover his tracks he is wise in his ability to actually sin and then justify it. He's just really, really good at this. He's very good at justifying small discretions or indiscretions. He's very, very good at getting away with things that everyone else around him may know is bad, but he can get away with it somehow. How does that guy do it? Well, he's a man wise in his own conceit, and there is more hope of a fool than of him. Do not be wise in your own opinion. This is the concept of being wise in your own eyes. You actually have outthought God. You know what? You figured it all out. The law of God is pressing upon you, but you have come up with a loophole. You are that brilliant. You are wise in your own eyes. And you actually think that you can get away with justifying yourself. You know that something's going to catch up with you before too long? Especially on Judgment Day, when that justification is going to be demanded and all the evidence that would justify you is going to be requested. All right? So you say that uh, you are righteous. Prove it. Could you imagine? What are you going to call on? Your, your conceit? Uh, your, your, your creative slick attorney? I was like, yeah, well, God, you see, uh, 
I was born in a, in a really bad neighborhood, and I was abused uh, growing up, and then, uh, and then, uh, you see, the law still weighs upon you. You're responsible for not justifying yourself, but turning unto the only one who can justify you. Wise in your own opinion. Many of us can actually think that we are saved by knowledge of Scripture, not by the man of Scripture. It's a funny thing where we actually have a whole bunch of information about Scripture and we think that somehow that's going to enable us to get through and be justified. But that's not how we're saved. We're saved by the man of Scripture, Jesus Christ. Many of us consider ourselves innocent of guilt due to the fact that others are far greater perpetrators than we are. And many of us feel that we're saved by our cunning ability to deflect all conviction with a brilliant argument and or a clever justification for all our sin. What is that doing? We're exalting our opinion above God's opinion. The Bible actually lays out a very clear indictment of every single one of us. It's a judgment. You're guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You included. Yes, Eric? I know that you're very good at arguing. I know that you're very creative with your slick answers. But I'm just here to tell you, in my word, those slick answers don't work on me. They may confuse a lot of other people around you, but they don't work on me. Yeah, you may have gotten away with it in that relationship, but you didn't get away with it in the relationship with me. You're guilty. And what I'm looking for, Eric, is for you to finally acknowledge that you're guilty that you have offended me, that you have wronged me, and that you are against my law, and that you are not righteous. What? I'm righteous. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me, and as a result, I will die. The great secret to Christianity is recognizing I'm wrong. <laughs> it's that simple. I am wrong. That wasn't right. That was sin. According to God, that's sin. I am guilty. That's where it begins. It's called bad news. Don't get me wrong. It isn't good news necessarily to find out that you're a sinner. But the good news must have the bad news as its basis. The bad news is what leads you to understand your need for a Savior. If you don't know you need a Savior, then you will never turn to a Savior. If you are not hungry, then you would never turn to food. And so God, just like when he says, I came as a physician, I came to, for those who were sick. Unless you know you're sick, then he can't heal you. You must know your need, and then he can meet that need. Dikai'o, to justify, to render one right with God. That's our word in the, in the Greek. So here we are in Romans 3, and Paul uses this word quite a bit in Romans. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. You see, the law is coming down on every single one of us. It's weighing down. It's perfect standard of righteousness is on all of our shoulders. Why? That our mouths would be stopped. All that self-justifying would be quit. See, the law is given so that we would be silenced before. It's like, I'm guilty that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Doesn't that sound like a rude agenda that God has, that we would all be found guilty? Well, we are guilty. The problem is we don't know we're guilty. And until we know we're guilty, we will not turn 
to our Savior. You see, all of us are guilty. But what the law does is it reveals our guilt. It reveals sin. It shows us that we are not as we ought to be. That's the way we're supposed to be. And we're not. <gasps> What's wrong with me? Something's wrong. And so we try in our own strength to be that way, and we can't. Something's wrong. And God says, bingo. That's why I gave you the law. You see, I gave you the law so you would awaken to that and turn to me. And that's when you cry out, what must I do to be saved? You see, the law brings you to Jesus. So it says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. By trying to keep the law, by trying to perform with our own ability, our own behavior, our own wit, growl, determination, we can't, by the deeds of the law, be justified. We cannot self-justify. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let me read that line again. It might not make total sense to you right now, but this is what we're going to go into. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So where was it found? It was found in Christ Jesus. And we have some, we're being justified, but not by the law, but by something different. It's called grace. We are justified by grace and not by the law. Most of us, when we feel that guilt and we see the standard of righteousness, we want to keep it. We want to demonstrate to God that, no, we're actually not guilty. Watch. I'll show you with my behavior that I really am fine. Thanks for giving me the cue that I need to live this way, but I actually don't need any help. I'm fine. And we will die that way. You need to be saved. You need to be rescued. But you can't rescue yourself. And that's what the law is clarifying. So whom God, speaking of Jesus Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, which means a just satisfying offering, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. Now you've been hearing the word justified this whole time, but you know that just and justified are very similar. Someone who is justified is now considered just. That means they are just or right with the law. They are in agreement with the law, so they are considered just. So who is just? It says that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. God is just, is what the Bible declares. God is in perfect agreement with the law. The law is basically an enunciation of his nature. That's who he is. The law is not bad. The law declares to us the behavior of God. It says, and you don't have that behavior, do you? <gasps> no, I don't. What's wrong with me? And unless you do have that behavior, you can have no part with me. <gasps> oh, no. So, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Who justifies? God does. You don't. So when you try to justify yourself, what are you doing? 
You're looking for an answer outside of the cross. You are looking for some other means of gaining that sense of rightness or peace in your soul outside of the lone and only means of salvation and justification that there is. And that's the cross. Two kinds of dikaiao. So we can be justified by faith or justified by the work of Jesus, or we can try and be justified by self-effort or justified by the work, cunning, and grand illusions of us. God, look at what I did. No, I can do this for you. Oh, you want righteousness? Okay, I'll do righteousness for you. I'm gonna be a good boy. I'm not gonna look at these things. I'm not ever gonna speak this way again. I'm never going to have any bad emotion. I'm always going to be forgiving. I'm never going to have one dark thought ever again. All right? You pleased? You see, we can't do it. Have any of you have ever tried that, by the way? Because that probably sounds like quite a few of us in here. We've tried it. It doesn't work that way. However, that doesn't mean that God doesn't intend us to live triumphantly. It's just that we cannot gain that triumph in us. It's not in our pockets. If someone came up to me and demanded $20 right now, I'm like, I, I don't have that. I said, well, if you don't have it, you die. Oh, no! I need $20 from someone else in here, otherwise I'm dying. And that's exactly what God did. He saw our need and made provision for us. But it is a, it is a provision outside of us. I can't brag about it. I say, yeah, yeah, I came up with that $20. No, I was gifted that $20. I didn't have it, and I was going to die if I didn't get it. So thank you, Jesus, for supplying it. And he supplied us a lot more than $20. So we're going to take a quick study of a character named Absalom. Absalom in the Bible, I have a whole message, I don't know what, what it was. Earlier this year it was called Absalom. And this is an extremely fascinating study, and I would encourage you to listen to the whole message, because this is just going to be a little snapshot of it. But a quick look at Absalom. Absalom is the son of David, King David. And Absalom is just a bad character. There's no way around it. However, in Israel, in the time in which he lived, he was a very attractive character. I mean, he has this hair that just grows like a maniac. I mean, when they describe it, it's almost awkward how much hair he cuts off each year, and they're like carrying it in bundles, uh, like, you know, bind it up and feed the sheep with it type of thing. It's just massive amounts of stuff. And, I mean, my hair grows, but, you know, if we cut it all off in one year, we might be able to fill up a little, you know, bowl. You know, so I'm not exactly sure what was going on in this guy's head. <laughs> but he had just loads of hair, and he was a beautiful man, which is, again, for all of us men in here, a little awkward. It's like, oh, you know, okay, we could skip that. But there was something about him that was very appealing to the culture in which he was in. He was, he's the classic picture of self-justification. And guess what? He is a bad, bad guy in Scripture. And yet everyone in his generation, it seems, fell for it. Everyone was like, yeah, I like that guy. That guy can help me. So David is the rightful king. Absalom is his son. But Absalom desires to be the rightful king. He desires to be the ruler in Israel. And so let's just go through the story here. So this is the classic picture of self-justification. Absalom actually is pronounced in the Hebrew, Abi Shalom. So if you know Hebrew, now let me say this word, Abi, Abba, Abba. What does that sound like? Abba, okay, I helped you out there a little, but uh, that's the word for father, okay? And then we have Shalom. Do you guys know what that means? Peace. So this means father of peace 
where my father is peace, which is quite a statement considering his life. He is anything but peaceful, and he is anything but the father of peace. However, the way self-justification works is it comes to your door and says, by the way, I'm the father of peace. If you turn to me, I'll help you out. I'll help you not have to serve King David. Instead, I'll be your king, and I'll make sure your interests are taken care of. And we're like, huh? Are you saying I don't need to serve King David? That's right. You could serve me, and I will make sure that your needs, your comforts, your wants are my highest priority in my kingdom. And that's exactly what happens in our soul. There is an Absalom that stands there, and we can call it self-justification. We feel the guilt. We feel the judgment. You see, King David's a little too rude up there on his throne. It's like, come on, you don't need to hold the standard of God Almighty, do you? And then Absalom comes in. You having trouble with King David? Yeah, I am, by the way. And he says, I can help with that. You see, if you make me king, I'm the father of peace, and I can give you peace in your soul. You know that guilt you're feeling? Yeah, you don't need to be under that anymore. What do I need to do? Make me king. Sounds fair enough. And there's a coup in our soul. Though we are in the kingdom of Israel under the banner of God, we reject the word of God. We reject the law of God. And it's usurped by Absalom. Self-justification. So, Ab, Father. Shalom, peace. Shalom also, in its more expanded understanding, means completeness or soundness or safety, welfare, health, and prosperity. How about this one? All is right or all as it should be. Your soul's not right, is it? There's some disturbance in it. Yeah. Guilt? Condemnation? I mean, it's just weighing down upon me. And, so, and Absalom says, boy, oh, I just hate it when the people in David's kingdom have to be under that. It's just not fair. I wish I could be over this kingdom because I could sure help with that and I could bring peace. Remember what my name is? Abbe Shalom. I'm the father of peace. Boy, I wish I could do more to help you. Oh, by the way, there's a vote coming up. If you vote for me, I could be uh, the one to save you. Shalom. Abbe Shalom. Forget David. I am the one who can make all that is wrong right in Israel. Forget God's justification. Forget the cross. I can justify you, says Abbe Shalom. I can justify you, says this false voice within. So that brings up another character, another very, very bad dude in Scripture, and his name is Lucifer. Hilel is actually what his name is. I don't know how they get Lucifer out of that. I'm not exactly sure. Hilel, it means bringer of light. Isn't that interesting? Father of peace. Like, how could that be a bad guy? Well, it's a false peace. Bringer of light. That sounds like a great name. Yeah, a false light. You know what light is to the Hebrew? It's knowledge. It's understanding. Lucifer brings something, but it's a false understanding of truth. Oh, God didn't tell you this, did he? The day, you know, he says you can't eat this fruit. He doesn't want you to know the day in which you eat it. You'll be as he is. You'll be a God. You see, you don't need to submit to his law. You could be a law unto yourself. You don't need to buy that. He's a bringer of false light. He stands at the gate of our soul, and he's beckoning us to serve him instead of King David, instead of King Jesus. 
So Lucifer, forget Jesus, for I have knowledge that he is purposely withholding from you, knowledge that will make all things right for you. I can give you peace. You see, you don't go after God's version of those things. I can give it to you in a completely different way. Introducing Abbe Shalom, Mr. False Peace. The grievances. <clears throat> there are four key grievances in Lucifer's, I'm sorry, Absalom's life. And these four grievances lead to a behavior pattern for him, which is anything but peaceful, anything but righteous. How do we end up behaving the way we do? And what's funny is Absalom was totally justified the whole time in himself. It's almost like you'd get the notion that he never felt one pang of guilt in and through this. And all of us looking on are like, uh, buddy, uh, Mr. Peace, uh, you're not living very peacefully here. So let's go through that. The justification of Mr. False Peace. Grievance number one, the violation of Tamar. His sister is ruthlessly, I mean, it is a, a horrible story. But Amnon, uh, one of David's oldest sons, actually violates, harms in a very, very diabolical way, Absalom's sister, whose name is Tamar. Now, the problem is, King David really doesn't do anything to punish Amnon. Amnon. He just sort of turns a blind eye. Is it wrong? Yes. What Amnon did to Tamar, was it wrong? Yes. What David did in turning a blind eye, was that wrong? Yes. But grievance number two, the non-action of David. David doesn't do anything about it. Grievance number three, Absalom leaves for multiple years, and David is counseled to invite him back. But Absalom has been basically exiled, but it's a self-exile. He left because of the guilt that was attempting to come upon him, and he was invited back into the kingdom. And he communicates with Joab, who is David's right-hand man. And Joab isn't returning his calls. He's not returning his texts. He's not responding to any of his emails. And uh, so, is that wrong? Yeah. It's not appropriate to behave that way towards Absalom. Grievance number four, the insensitivities of David. David seemed to completely be ignorant of all the burdens that Absalom had in his life. He didn't do anything about Tamar. He didn't do anything about Joab. He is mistreating his son. You see, Absalom has a grievance. Was he right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, he was mishandled. There were things that were done wrong. But what Lucifer, basically the same thing, Absalom does as a result is not appropriate. So here it is. The Absalom response, devilish behavior packaged inside a man of supposed justice. Grievance number one and number two, the violation of Tamer and the non-action of David. Well, what does Absalom do? Vigilante justice, killing Abnon in cold blood. He literally goes out and kills his brother. Cold blood. It is a conspiracy. It is literally plotted and planned. It is disgusting what Absalom does, but what does he say? My father didn't deal with it properly. I'm Mr. Peace. And so I'm coming to bring peace to my kingdom. So I was hit on one cheek. That's why I hit him. I was lied to. That's why I lied. There was a violence done to my family. That's why a violence was done to this family. Two wrongs do not make a right. Grievance number three, the non-communication of Joab. So what does Absalom do? Joab's not returning his calls. He's not responding when Absalom returns to town. So what does Absalom do? He burns down Joab's barley field. 
That'll teach them. No one doesn't communicate with me. Grievance number four, the insensitivities of David. So what does Absalom do? He woos the hearts of Israel through deception and flattery and turns them against David, stealing his father's throne, defiling his father's house. You see, what Absalom did was absolutely horrible. And yet the whole while, you would have thought that he was Mr. Peace. The whole while, he was doing it with a smile on his face, and he looked beautiful. How many of us have a smile on our soul, and we're looking beautiful to the Christian world around us, but meanwhile, we're actually behaving as Absalom instead of as Jesus? That's not how Jesus would respond. That's the opposite of Jesus. The Absalom twist, in order to make a wrong right, another wrong is justified. The heavenly principle, God's solutions are not not brought about by ungodly actions. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. You know that self-justification is getting pretty bad when even those that call themselves Christians are snuffing out other Christians under the banner of doing God a service. You know what? I don't know that we're getting very healthy here. You see, it's called self-justification. Self-justification blinds and only expands itself in our life. It doesn't know how to stay small. So if you begin to self-justify, it begins to grow within your life, and you honestly can feel and get up and testify in front of a church, I feel that I'm doing God's work. Yes, the reason I am uh, killing Amnon, I'm sure all of you can appreciate this, is for the glory of God. The reason I burned down Joab's field is for the glory of God. And the reason that we ousted David and kicked him off the throne is because it's for the glory of God. No, it's not. It was for Absalom and his fleshly pleasure and his fleshly craving. Let's call a spade a spade. That is not true. A short list of Absalomian justifications. So this is more of an examination of our souls. There are different things that we do inside of our souls, and we have creative covers for them. It's like, oh, no, that's, that's not actually what it looks like. I'm actually just doing it for this reason. We have a little story already prepackaged for when we do it. Gossip and slander. Well, you feel justified to do it because you saw something in the church. You know, that person... Uh, and how many times do we even take it into prayer? It's like, I just love this person so much, I just really feel we need to pray for them. And what do we need to pray for? Oh, you didn't hear? <laughs> and so out comes this whole tale of things we need to be praying for. It's called gossip and slander, but it's self-justified gossip and slander. Fleshly anger and rage because you uncovered unrighteousness. You may see something that is unrighteous, but how you respond to it is still must be righteous. How you respond to things that are done poorly still must be restrained to the nature and the spirit of God. Backing out of a commitment in a dishonorable way. Well, because you feel led to do something different. So you tell these people, yes, I will be there uh, for that. I will show up on Saturday uh, to mow your lawn. And then suddenly you're like feeling led to do something different. That's again a self-justification. Spreading discord, well, because it's deserving. Yeah, you know how many things are deserving? You know what we deserve? If you want to talk about what we deserve or what others deserve, it's not pretty. Let's not go there. When we start thinking about what others deserve and that's why we gave it to them, be very watchful. How many times have we said that person just needed to be knocked down a few notches? That's not your job. 
Because if you start knocking down other people a few notches, guess what? God will take it into his own hands to knock you down quite a few notches. Exaggerating faults. Because otherwise, people may not truly understand the gravity of the situation. Have you ever felt burdened by something, but in describing it, it doesn't sound like a big enough story? And you want others to be burdened by it? And so as a result, you just sort of add to it a little? You guys heard about my squeeze the hand story, didn't you? Uh, I was in church one morning, and they had testimonies. And I stood up, and I picked this homeless man up on the street and taken him to his home in inner city Denver. And, you know, I'd done this great deed, and I was sort of desiring to share that with the church. I mean, they would be like, oh, that's very impressive. But as I was sharing it, I realized it was a very, very boring story. Picked the guy up and took him home. And then I, I, I had some other things in there, like I shared with him about Jesus. I did, but it was fairly simple. And I asked him right at the end if he could pray with me. But it was fairly boring, okay? The story just didn't have any life to it. You know, like the conflict and the resolution that makes a good movie. And so I felt like it was important for me to add something. And so... I said, and I took his hand as we prayed, and I squeezed his hand, and he squeezed mine. <laughs> then I sat down, and uh, thank you, Eric. <clears throat> and then God sort of like squeezed his hand. <laughs> well, I mean, he might have. I just don't, I don't remember if he did or not. I mean, I, I had such... A realization in that moment that if I didn't get up and make it right then, I was going to, have to track down everyone in that church and make it clear. So it was one of the most awkward things. The guy's like, okay, open your, uh, <clears throat> your Bible to 1 Samuel. And I'm like, excuse me. Excuse me. And he's like, uh, yes, sir. And I'm like, I-, I need to say something. All right. Uh, he didn't really squeeze my hand. <laughs> it's just better to be honest up front. No embellishments. Self-pity. Well, because you were wronged, and it's only right to nurse your wounds. Yes, you were wronged. However, self-pity is never a proper behavior pattern for the saints of God, ever. Revenge, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment. Well, because justice must be served. Our way of serving justice oftentimes is in holding on to a grievance. Nursing a grievance stewing over a grievance. We think we're bringing justice about. Actually, what we're doing is we're destroying our soul. Banding with others of same spirit with grievances. One of the most dangerous things that can happen in the body of Christ is a faction. And a faction that has a, that has a common grievance because what happens in that common grievance is everyone justifies themselves by the fact that everyone else is angry, unforgiving, and bitter. It's like we're all Christians and we're all that way. I guess it's okay. It's one of the most dangerous things in the body of Christ that can happen. Responding is Jesus. So let's just do a quick contrast. We forgive, we forgive, and we forgive. We turn the other cheek. We walk the extra mile. We rejoice. We leap with joy. We respond with gentleness. You see, Jesus, standing at the gate of our soul, when we encounter difficulty, when we realize that we are wrong, our response is completely different. When we are harmed, we do not end up Going over to Absalom and saying, what's your plan? Because I can't wait to bring down this lawgiver. I can't wait to get that voice stopped in my life. I'm sick and tired of feeling guilty. There is one way to deal with your guilt that will truly bring life, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Any other means leads to death. Recognizing the Absalom technique. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. 
And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, uh, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. There's really no one that can hear your case. You have a problem, don't you? Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which has any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all, did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Self-justification can steal the heart of the church of Jesus Christ from the cross. Now what's interesting, let's just follow this. When you first came to Christ, you came to the cross. However, now you've been living as a Christian and you recognize the fact that you have certain behaviors that you like and you don't really desire to give up. You see, you want Christianity, you want the benefits of the cross, but you want them for eternity. You don't want actually the searchlight of the Spirit now. And so as a result, though you started with the cross, you've turned to Absalom to live out this Christian life. You want the cross for the benefits of the eternal, but you want Absalom in this life. You want someone who will kiss your hand and tell you what you want to hear. Absalom, it doesn't matter what you were wearing. You could have wore, what's a really bad combination uh, of colors? What, what? Stripes and plaid, so a striped shirt and a plaid shorts, and if, he said, if you came up to Absalom and said, what do you think? He'd say, it looks great. <laughs> Self-justification will always tell you that your plaid and stripes looked great. Your violations of the law of God, it's really not a violation. Just turn to Absalom. He'll give you a great story that you can give to everyone around you and even try with God. It's like, oh, God, you know, this, is, this is how it worked. God's not buying it. Do you have an Absalom stand at the gate inside your soul? Are you, walk, are you a walking contradiction? Are you a big talker and a small liver? Such a discrepancy should not last one more minute in your life. If you're a mere talker, you must question what your true motive is. Are you truly interested in justice and mercy and doing that which is right and the health of, all, health of Israel is all that matters? Or is it all a big charade? Number two, do you tell people what they want to hear or what they need to hear? Are you a flatterer or a truth bearer? Plaid and stripes aren't looking too good. So when someone comes up to you in the church, <laughs> what do you say? In other words, are you looking at those plaids and stripes in your soul and your own behavior? Are you looking at it in others? And are you just turning a blind eye? Are you joining up with the Absalom regime? Are you honoring your parents? Are you honoring those in authority over you? Remember, Absalom didn't honor his parents. It's one of the big themes in this. Are you undermining those assigned to lead you, or are you seeking to build them stronger? When you see weaknesses in your authority, do you pray and seek their strengthening through humility, love, and service, or do you whittle away their credibility through whispers, snide remarks, and ceaseless critiques? Do you think that you are the answer to everyone's problems? If so, you are arch enemy number one to God's agenda. If you think you're the savior of this world, you are the arch enemy to God's agenda. 
For there is only one answer to everyone's problems, and that is Jesus Christ. If you are laboring to see yourself established as the big guy, then it's high time you step down, bent your knee, and properly acknowledge that this life is not about you. Are you justifying small indiscretions? Do you believe the ends justify the means? Do you believe that a little flesh here and there is all right as long as your position of Christian influence is maintained? The Christian life is a life without compromise. If you are overlooking small things, then it is highly likely you are setting yourself to justify, setting yourself up to justify larger indiscretions. This is a sure sign that Absalom is standing at your gate. Number six, do you find that those who surround you have a similar ability to justify their small lives and their indiscretions? Are you a rallying point for others that are hosting an Absalom at their gate? You know, when you begin to surround yourself with this behavior, you feel very much at home and there is a sense of peace. And you actually are like, this is so neat. I, I love being around the body of Christ. However, what's happening in the body of Christ is you're being told that your plaid and your stripes look good. When in actuality, you're dying. The body of Christ isn't always comfortable, but it is always going to build you stronger. The body of Christ has edges of you know, iron sharpening iron. And that's not always cozy. There are many of us in here that actually go through mental gymnastics of thinking about how we could just be more comfortable. And there's certain things you could do. And I would say avoiding this room on Sunday mornings is one of them that would be a lot more comfortable. Some of you were thinking that this morning. There are more comfortable ways of living. And yet, for those of us that want to deal a death blow to Absalom, we come and we say, I want the word of God. And I want it uncompromised. I want it undiluted. I want it to speak straight. I want it to root out whatever it is that is keeping me from that cross. That cross is the only means of salvation. Anything that would woo you away to find any form of justification outside of that is arch enemy number one. Understanding Christ's justification. So all of that to get to this. First of all, you have to know how much you need it. If you think, oh, I already have that. I'm already justified in his blood. Why is it then that you are spending day in and day out with all your indiscretions in your life justifying them? You're self-justifying. If you're self-justifying, something's wrong with your relationship with that cross. You see, when we are convicted of sin, well, the first thing that comes out of a humble Christian is, I'm wrong. That was wrong. You feel the guilt. It's a gift from the Spirit of God. That conviction is a gift. And you say, thank you, Jesus, for not letting me go in that direction. Absalom could be standing over here going, hey, Ludi, <laughs> Hey, Ludi, you, you don't need to feel that conviction. I have another solution for you. It's a constant bait. However, we say, I don't need another solution. I already have the solution, the cross. And just as the cross was good for me when I first came to Jesus, it's still good for me now. And just as it is still good for me now, it's still going to be good for me 50 years from now because I still expect to be living at the age of 93. I mean, unless I'm martyred, or unless Jesus returns. In other words, we have a decision to make in every moment of our life. And if you have stopped turning to the cross, some archaic notions, like, oh, I did that when I was 18 and I prayed a prayer, then you're actually running the risk of on Judgment Day coming before him with your pockets crammed full of your justifications, and you have forgot the work of the cross. You have forgot the importance of the blood of Jesus. And your life is a dead wreck instead of a living testimony. 
So the five pieces to the puzzle of Christ's justification. Piece number one, the bad news. If you don't have the bad news, the good news has no context. Here's a little of the bad news. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good, no, not one. By the way, you might as well include yourself in that list. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. How are we doing? Uh, Well, not one of us is doing good. Not one of us. No, not one. So here we have, if you look off to the left, you see the law up there with a downward arrow. Everything's black because everything's dark here. And it's condemnation. There's a black character down there too. That's Adam. Adam is in sin. Adam is marred by sin. Adam is going to receive the wage or the penalty of sin. And in and of himself, his own righteousness, he has nothing to justify himself. So look, look to the, the right. What you see is self-justification. You can attempt to self-justify yourself, but you know what? The law is still pressing you down and you're still black. And still your eternal destination is the same as those that are under condemnation. Self-justification may be a creative cover. It's like, oh, I'm not condemned. I'm self-justified. Self-justification and condemnation are the same thing. Self-justification is just a creative cover to try and alleviate the grief of, of guilt that you are feeling in this life. And so you are self-justifying to attempt to tell yourself and convince yourself that you are just fine. When in actuality, you are not just fine. You are a dead man, a dead woman. You are in need of a savior. And you're not just in need of a savior when you're 18. You're in need of a savior when you're 40. You're not just in need of a savior when you're 40. You're in need of a savior when you're 80. And you're in need of a savior when you're 93. And if you keep living, uh, you're in need of a Savior. Every single one of us, no matter how long we've lived with Christ, no matter how long we've walked in Christ, you know that we never get to the point where we can detach from our Savior? We cannot live outside of our Savior for one moment. It's like trying to be in space and be without your spacesuit. You must be in Christ Jesus. The only salvation you have on Judgment Day is being in Christ. It is his righteousness that is your plea, not your own. Don't dig into your pockets on judgment day and say, hey, look at this good deed I did 20 years ago. No, what we pull out on judgment day is look at this great deed he did 2,000 years ago. Look what he did. That is my plea. I don't have any plea of my own. That's my plea. It's his work on the cross. Piece number two, he did what we could not Very, very important. First of all, you have to come to the conclusion that you cannot do it. There are a lot of things that you can do, and I do not want to diminish God's creation of humanity by saying, well, you can do nothing. You're like, you stand up and say, I can stand up, and you like blink. You're like, I can blink. Yes, there are a lot of things that physically or naturally you can do, but there are certain things, and they're all spiritual, and they have to do with righteousness, holiness, a godly life that you cannot pull off. We are dead. There's no spirit within us to enable us to live a life that is otherwise impossible unless we come to the cross. And so he did what we could not. So the law comes down and says, uh, you're guilty, Eric. And then I finally come to grips with the fact that I'm guilty. 
Instead of self-justifying, instead of saying, hey, I'm better than uh, Chuck down the street, I say, you know what, God? Your law is right. I am guilty. That is sin. Those thoughts are sinful thoughts. Those emotions are sinful emotions. This is wrong. Who can save me from this body of death? Asks Paul in Romans 7, and then his next line is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He did what we could not. Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Who justifies you? Who makes you right before the law? Not you. Your self-justifying isn't helping you out. But I can point you to one who can justify you, who did justify you. He was delivered for our offenses. This is such a mental picture in, in, in here. And he was raised again for our justification. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. The offense of Adam, and you're in Adam, condemn, or judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Every single one of us, because of Adam's sin, is under judgment unto condemnation. It's like, thanks a lot, buddy. And yet every single one of us has participated in the crime. And if any of us tries to excuse ourselves from that, saying, hey, just because I'm born of Adam doesn't mean I did anything wrong. Oh, are you sure about that? Have you ever stood next to the Ten Commandments and measured yourself according to the spirit of it? Have you ever wondered about, I mean, just honoring your father and mother. Have you always honored Jesus? Your father in heaven? Steal. Thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stolen the glory, the attention of any one human being to look at you instead of at God? Just once. This is a crime and we have transgressed. So it says, even so by the righteousness of one, Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Oh, look at this drawing. Some of you love my drawings. I know you never make comments on them. I've never heard, you've never gotten one pat on the back for any of my drawings. But <laughs> I know that deep down inside of someone, someone in here, you guys like them. So look at, look what happens. We have condemnation over here. This is the guy who is feeling the guilt and is aware of his guilt, but doesn't know the cross. Then we have the other guy over there that felt his guilt, but went to Absalom. And now he's self-justified, not knowing his need. But there is another one. And I would like to say that either one of these can be awakened at any moment by the Spirit of grace. However, there's us. And we know, we felt the condemnation, and we know the dangers of self-justification. But God's grace has been so amazing in our life. And what has it done? It has brought us back to say, you are guilty. And we say, I know. But God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to please you. I'm trying everything I know to do. It's not what you do, Eric. It's what I did. What? Well, what do you mean? Come to my cross. That is the work. It's not the work you do. It's the work I did. And so when we turn to the cross... Everything changes. But look at this cross. I'm just going to describe the middle. We're going to call it grace. Now look at the law isn't, the standards of, of righteousness don't dissipate. They're still there. The law is still the law. It doesn't mean that after we come to Jesus, we can put other gods before us. It doesn't mean we can start being thieves. It doesn't mean we can dishonor our parents and be covetous. It doesn't mean we can now commit murder and get away with it. That isn't how it works. 
So the law is still in existence. It's like a plane. When you get in a plane, gravity still exists, but you're in a higher law. It's called the law of aerodynamics. And when you're in the law of aerodynamics, though there's gravity outside the plane, it's not hindering you anymore. You see, you are under law when you are outside of that cross. And that law will press you down into the abyss. It will press you down and down and down. And the wages of being outside of that deliverance vehicle known as the cross is condemnation. However, if you believe on Jesus, you enter into grace. Grace isn't the absence of law, but it is a completely different way of living on earth. And it's a completely different way of handling your guilt. You see, we are wrong. We are guilty. We are not as we ought to be. Something is wrong with us. However, we've been given a gift a free gift in and through the life of Jesus, the death and suffering of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, something has been made available to us. Grace. So look at I put a crown on the top of grace, of the cross, because this is not just a cross, it's a person. So I'm attempting to show you a person that's shaped like a cross. I know it's a little strange. I didn't put eyes on it. I didn't want to make it any more weird than it is. Because when we come to the cross, when we come unto Jesus, we're not really coming unto a plank of wood. We're coming unto a person, and we are being clothed in a person, not in a plank of wood. The cross is symbolic of the person who gave up his life. It is symbolic of Christ's righteousness. This is the work of justification. It's not self-justification. It's Christ's justification. Piece number three, we must see our need and see him as our lone savior. So you can't do it. Only he can do it. You must know your need. And when you see your need, then it's very, very important. It's, not, it's one thing to see a need and go, I'm helpless, woe is me, and then despair. But when you are brought to that point of need, then you must be introduced to the gospel. You must be introduced to the fact that Jesus is the lone means of salvation. And I mean lone. The only one in existence. And yes, I know what I'm saying when I say that. That, yes, is exclusive. Yes, that might sound narrow-minded. However, it is the only way. And God himself said that. Eric's just repeating it. He is the only way to the Father. There is only one means of dealing with justification, and that is Jesus. For by him all that believe are justified from all things. That's an incredible statement. And by him, Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You had the perfect law, and yet you could not be justified. So you were condemned. You tried to self-justify yourself, but you were condemned. But by Christ and by the work of that cross, we are justified in all things. So here we are. Now look at, there's a green guy in there. I know, a little strange, but that means living, okay? Dead and living. So when we come, based on need, we enter, to the, we enter in the cross. We enter into the work of Jesus, that need stimulates and gives opportunity and rise for us to believe and say, I am saved in Christ Jesus. I am justified only in Christ Jesus. And suddenly there is life. It's called eternal life. It's a life that is in inextinguishable. It never diminishes, never goes away. And it is only found in the cross by knowing that need and turning by faith unto Jesus. And you see there is an upward push. Now, we're used to only being pushed downward, guilt, 
Guilt is a constant push downward, but where does God take us? Where does Jesus take us? Well, he's going upward. You see, if you're clothed in Jesus, when he went to the cross, you go to the cross. When he was buried, you're buried. But where is he going? He's going up. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascends. And so when you enter into Christ by faith, do you know that you're no longer going down? You're going up? And so there's a constant pressing upward in behavior and life and attitude. Joy is an upward attitude. Despair and depression, those are downward attitudes. When you enter into the cross, everything begins to change. Guilt presses against us. However, it creates a very positive reaction in those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Piece number four. Then we must live under grace. Not pop into Christ for one day and say, okay, did I sign all the documents I needed to sign? All right, I'm going to now live under self-justification. That's not how it works. You must live under grace. You see, self-justification is under the law. You better be really good at self-justifying yourself to make it past the judgment day with that. That's under the law. And if you think you can pull it off, good luck. There's only one means, and that's the cross. So don't try and return to self-justification. Don't come to the cross and then heed Absalom and say, that's not a bad way of doing it. I mean, I can have the benefits of the cross for eternity, but I can live like Absalom in this life and justify all my sin? I like it. It's called death. It does not work that way. That's not how Christianity functions. So we must live under grace. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, there's a caveat to it. Sin does not have dominion over it. It no longer longer masters you. But why? Because you're now under grace. You see, when you're under law, sin controls you. It gives rise to sin. All it does is show you more sin. But when you're under grace, things change. And I'm going to walk through that. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I'm not going to frustrate God by coming in and dotting a few eyes saying, okay, did I pass the test? Can I now be considered in Christ, all right, for judgment day? All right. Now I'm going to go out and live under self-justification. Talk about frustrating. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Well, how about you live in grace instead of falling from it? Instead of getting off that tree and saying, you know, I don't need this cross anymore, and coming down and fall into the ground under self-justification. If you're under self-justification, that means you're not under grace. So I don't know if you see the seriousness of that, but I would say let's awaken to how self-justification works. Let's not meddle with it. Let's not tamper with it. Let's not trivialize it. Let's not say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Let's say this is a huge deal, and it has to do with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It has to do with something known as true justification. So here we are. The law is pressing down, and we already see the black guy, you know, the the ones that are marked in sin on both sides. Condemnation, self-justification, both equal in their effect. You're going down. But then this guy, the green guy, you, has entered and felt your need, your need for a savior, and by faith has entered into the cross, and there's an upward propulsion in your soul, that grace is bringing about. Grace is rising you up to live in grace and to reach that heavenly high life of Jesus Christ. So we'll look at that crown up there as being your high calling of the life that you've been called to, the perfect man, to bear the image of Jesus Christ. And so what is grace doing in pulling you up? It's bringing you to that cross beam. 
And in the crossbeam, we have three very specific things, conviction, repentance, and empowerment. Now, outside of that cross, what happens? The law comes down upon us and says, hey, Eric, I demand perfect righteousness. And what do I feel? I feel guilt. I feel condemnation. Is it real? Yep, it's real. Because I'm outside of the cross. And so, I am miserable. I'm in despair and depression. And so oftentimes, that's when Absalom's voice makes the most sense. Hey, I can help you. However, if you're in grace or under grace, you are pushed up to that cross beam and you are convicted of your sin. It's not condemnation. Conviction and condemnation are two very, very different things. Condemnation offers you no hope. Conviction is always given as an act of love and a means of rescuing you. If you are convicted as a sign of the Holy Spirit, it's one of the number one attributes to know that the Holy Spirit is present in your life is you're convicted of sin. Praise God, I'm convicted. It's called sweet conviction. You learn to love conviction because conviction is a sign that you are in Christ, that you are living as you ought to live. Yeah, that behavior was wrong, but guess what? You have a God who loves you too much to not point it out. Thank you, Jesus. And he's, he loves you too much to allow you to turn to Absalom. He says, no, 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 no stories here. I love you, and I want to see you made strong. So what happens is we receive conviction, and we repent of that behavior. Instead of self-justifying it, we repent of it. And then what happens? We gain empowerment to live differently. So, yes, you mishandled your tongue. And you know, in Christ Jesus, you already know the standards of righteousness, and you know that that isn't the way Christ would speak. So you feel conviction because of the Holy Spirit. You say, thank you. And you turn from that and say, God, this tongue belongs to you. And so afresh, I just lay it before you and I say, you, take my tongue and you speak. And he gives you grace now to speak words of life. You see, when you're under grace, you still have conviction and the law is still working in a certain regard, but you're not under it. The law is aiding and abetting the conviction of soul, which leads to a repentance of soul, which leads to an empowerment and a constant increase so that more of Christ comes ebbing forth and ushering forth out of your being. There's no condemnation. You don't have to be under the thumb of guilt, that pressing downward of damnation. It doesn't exist in Christ. You have a buoyancy and a lifting up, and there's a jubilance, even when you're convicted. I'm convicted multiple times every week. And as I go through that, it's not a dour thing, even though I'm still upset that I did certain things. When I, I remember I was on the phone this past week, and I said something that just really bothered me. I got off and I was like, oh God, what was that? That was ridiculous. I was convicted, I repented, and I went to the throne room of grace for grace for help in time of need. God, the next phone call I'm on, I want you to showcase your power. I turned and I looked in my own pockets for that conversation. And I tried to talk with my own ability instead of your ability. I repent of that. I need you to enable me to do my phone calls. So look at what we have here. The law is pressing down, but see those, those sort of golden arrows on the side? The cross is always bringing us upward. When we're in Christ, we're always going higher. The world around us may be corrupted. The world around us is dying. The world around us is going to be destroyed. However, when you're in Christ, there's always a pressing upward. Any of you that have lived in Christ for any season of your life know this. God doesn't leave you alone. There's always a refinement. There's always a pressing up. If you sense that you're starting to be 
to lack that uh, constant conviction in your life, that's the number one reason where I, I would run to the cross afresh today and say, God, I refuse to live a day without conviction. I want to be refined. I want you to work on my life. I want to know that the Holy Spirit is present. I do not want to live in self-justification. Don't let me create a barrier around me that keeps me from you. I don't want anything to hinder me. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Mr. False Peace, his solution was to oust the lawgiver. His solution was to somehow get a new king in. One that would be sensitive to your comforts and your demands of flesh. And yet, how do you get true peace? It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You see in a broken record in scripture here? Outside of the cross, there is no means of justification. There is only one means of justification, that is faith. You turn unto that cross, the man that hangs upon it, and you say, this work is my work. Without that work, I have no justification. And so you enter into the life of Christ by faith. And you say, now I'm clothed in him. He becomes clothing for you by faith. And so when you are brought up into that heavenly throne room, the Father sees Jesus when he sees you. He sees Jesus' behavior when he sees you. He sees Jesus' righteousness when he sees you. That's, a, that's such a, an extraordinary thought as opposed to us getting outside of that clothing and saying, I have this now, God. I can take it from here. I'm a very good attorney. I'll come up with reasons to explain why I'm living in sin. You'll really like them. I've got some really good uh, ones just sort of hidden away in my pockets just for that judgment in the years to come. You'll like it. No, he won't. He's already telling you ahead of time. There is no work of the law, whether it's the attorney's argument or whether it's your righteous deeds, your good deeds. You will be held accountable for every deed done in this body. And so as a result, we enter into Jesus Christ and we are accountable to every deed that he did in his body. We are justified by every deed he did in his body. Every word he spoke in his body. Every action he performed in his body becomes our action. We suddenly have the life of Christ clothing us. And the way he lived suddenly becomes our clothing and that is our justification before the law. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Those that are truly justified, the just, shall live by faith, not by the works of the law. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law, pressing down upon us, got us, got our attention. We're like, I'm guilty. And what does it lead us to? God! Is there any hope for me? Is there any salvation? He says, I sent you my son because I loved you. 
You see, the law is a schoolmaster. It trains us. It awakens us. It alerts us to Jesus. You see, we aren't as the law is. We are not righteous. We are not perfect. We are not holy. He is. And so we suddenly turn and we see the righteous one. And Jesus says, my work is your work. You turn to me and believe that my work is your work and my work is your work. Law is still there. The righteous standard of God is still in existence. However, we are no longer alive to it in the sense that we are alive to gravity when we're in a plane. We're dead to the law of gravity when we're in the plane. It has no power over us. The law no longer has the ability to judge us and condemn us. Now all it does is reprove us. All it can do is bring about a clarity that our soul needs to be still corrected and refined. And we need to grow even more clear a picture of Jesus Christ in this world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, because he loves us so much, he doesn't allow us to live in the flesh. But he's constantly bringing us upward, lifting us higher in behavior, in thought, in action, indeed. Piece number five, we must respond to conviction. We must repent and we must heed the call unto the throne room of grace. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what do we need to live this life? We need grace. How are you going to get grace? Go to the cross. That's How do we get up to the throne room of grace? Well, that's your only vehicle. You can't get there outside of that. The only way to live in this world is with grace. That's the only way to do it. It's God's life in you. God's life enabling you. God's life empowering you. Outside of that, you cannot do it. To me, it's pretty simple. Go to the cross. If you have self-justification and you're being exposed to having self-justification, what should you do today? Feel conviction. Repent. Come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Saved from that behavior. And I'm saying small s. We can have big s and small s. But we need to work out our salvation. All the small S's in our life, the things that are bringing us down, the weights that are besetting us. We turn into that cross and we say, God, I live for you. I do not want to justify one little small thing in my life. When it comes to sin, the cry is, but Lord, it was the, the woman. God's answer, no, it was you that did the sinning. Uh, my parents, uh, my friends, my brother and sister, my neighborhood, the, the liberal media, the Hollywood, uh, it was the alcohol. No, says God, it was you. It was you that did the sinning. Are you willing to swallow that reality? Because that reality is what turns you unto the cross. I'm a sinner. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. You know what? The more I live this life, the more I realize what Paul is talking about. Because most of us are saying, no, there's a lot worse sinners than Paul ever was. Sure, he, he attended to the stoning of Stephen, but come on. His sin wasn't that bad compared to like Adolf Hitler. And then Paul says he's the chief of sinners. That's because he's recognized so thoroughly his propensity away from God, his propensity downward. And he knows the value of that cross maybe better than any of us. The longer you live, the more you realize the value of the cross. The more you realize that, you know what? There is not a point in time where I can jump off that cross and say, okay, I got it. 
I got this. Thanks for getting me started, God. There's no point in time when you don't need the Spirit of God anymore. You don't need the shed blood of Jesus anymore. There's no point in time. We are dependent throughout. Though we are being perfected by the blood of Jesus, though we are growing stronger, we are still unable to stand and to live this life outside of his grace. When it comes to righteousness, the cry is, but Lord, I have done the good work. See, look at my righteousness. And God's answer, no, I have done the good work. See, look to my cross and behold my righteousness. That's salvation right there. You see, we must be rebuked by the word of God. And it needs to make it clear to us, no, I have done the good work, Eric. See, look to my cross and behold my righteousness. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.